And he says to me, he says, well, well, first off, congratulations. You're, you're now a millionaire. And let me tell you something. It's, it's easier to make a million dollars than it is to hold on to a million dollars. He says, there's going to be a lot of people pitching you investment ideas and there's going to be a lot of things you think you're going to want to do with this money and so on. But know that it's harder to keep it than it was to make it. And that really just stuck with me. And that's, and that's one of the things that almost scared me to a degree, just to, just to invest it as securely and, and non-sexy, in a non-sexy way as I could, get a good rate of return, and, and then move forward. And that way, you know, like, I know that like, I, I never have to pick up a weed eater again. You know, I spent 10 years literally like calluses on my hands, mowing grass, you know, and I didn't want to go back to that. Uh, and so for me, that has like informed my investment strategy of, okay, this is solid. You know, it's going to be here 10, 20, 30 years from now. It's going to grow at a certain rate of return, maybe more, but nevertheless. And that's formed my approach. You're listening to the Millionaire's Unveiled podcast, where you'll hear the stories and interviews of everyday millionaires. We'll unveil their decisions, their strategies, and their current portfolio allocation. Now to your hosts, Clark Sheffield and Jace Mattinson. Alrighty, welcome back to another episode of the Millionaire's Unveiled Podcast, episode 193. Jace, what's going on? How are you? Doing great, man. How you doing? Doing pretty well. Hanging in there. Nothing too big. Big news here this week. Uh, I guess a little bit personal finance related, but also college, NCAA, is athletes being able to uh, what what do they say? Pursue name, image, and likeness deals, right? So making money off of themselves. That's a, a big change for college sports. Yeah, it's going to be huge. I think uh, just in recruiting and one thing that's going on in college sports right now too is you had all these people in entering the transfer portal with COVID and stuff. They've been given an extra year of eligibility and it's really changed the landscape. And I think this these NIL rules will really kind of shrink that down. I don't know if the NCAA will crack down on some of these transfers or not, you know, in the next year or two and go back to kind of what it was. But I'm assuming some of these businesses and companies, if they sign with an agent or whatever to, to help them profit off this, they're going to be very aligned with the school and that brand as well. So they'll be, be interesting to see what, what it changes on the recruiting trail for, you know, there's a lot of talk, especially in basketball, which is something I fall probably the closest where high school athletes are, some of them are taking that G League route. And now if they've got the opportunity to potentially profit off their name in college, do they go that route for a year instead of going to G League? And does that get a little more competitive in terms of trying to, to bring the talent and stuff to, to different leagues? Be interesting to see what happens with this. Yeah, true. I hadn't thought about that because now you can make, you, you could play with maybe higher talent if you do the NBA, but if you don't, you could make some money. Totally. If you go the college route. Yeah. So I just reading an article here on ESPN this morning and I mean, this could be updated more when this comes out here in the next few days, but it, it seems like there's 12 or so states, a dozen or so states or, or that have approved this. So it doesn't seem like every state uh, is on board, but it says the new rules allow athletes to profit by monetizing social media accounts signing autographs, teaching camps or lessons, starting their own business, and participating in advertising campaigns, among many other ventures. NCAA rules still prevent schools from paying players directly. But I mean, pretty big deal. You already see some across the news that I, I saw like a vitamin powder or a, I mean, protein powder or a vitamin drink or something. People had already signed athletes for like $20,000. So it'll be interesting to, to see. I mean, some of these big name NCAA players real opportunity there yeah it's totally going to change the landscape and you know i think it's a it been a long time coming i'm glad that it's 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 getting put into place to some degree uh you know i think it'll be great for for several of these athletes to one be able to pursue some of these things and be entrepreneurs to some degree but also you know some of this stuff was kind of probably going on under the table anyway and so mm -hmm. now at least we're gonna we're gonna have some rules around it and and some regulations so that you know, these things can take place and, and be done, you know, legally. Yeah, you're going to acknowledge it now. Yep. So let's just uh, recognize here an uh, a review we got on iTunes. It says, I started listening half a year ago. This quickly became my favorite podcast. Not only is there a ton to learn from the episodes, but there's also countless resources provided through it. Anyone with financial ambitions must give it a listen. So thanks for that. That's from Can't Race 20. 
So if you enjoy the show, we, we appreciate you leaving a five-star review. It helps us grow the show and reach new millionaire interviewees. Just a quick recap from last week. We had Jay, Jay and his wife both work full-time for the government. They have a net worth of $1.8 million. He talked about saving 50% of his gross income, living off 20% of his gross. No real estate investments for those of you that are looking for somebody with that strategy and allocation. We also discussed living debt-free, teaching children about finances, which has become a little bit more of a popular topic, and also Jay's risk tolerance. So check that out, episode 192, if you haven't listened there. This week on 193, we have Brian. He's an entrepreneur, business owner, CEO, net worth of $4 million. He has over $3 million in paid-for real estate, so three out of the four is in real estate, all single-family rentals, about 300000 in the stock market, and the rest in his business. So fun to get a small business owner on the show as well. If you have questions for the millionaires, we had a few people write in this week. Just go to our website, millionairesunveiled.com, and you can comment directly on the episodes and engage with some of these millionaires if there's something you'd like to ask or something we didn't ask or something you want a little bit more clarification on. So feel free to engage there. And also you can submit a question to us or a question to the millionaires on the show, either written in or via SpeakPipe, which will allow you to leave a voicemail. And if you do that, we may include it in the show. So thanks for hanging with us. Happy July 4th to everybody. And without any further delay, let's get into episode 193 with Brian. Brian, you want to just give us a little about your background and what you're up to now? Yeah. So my current role is I'm the CEO of a company called GreenPal. And in one sentence, GreenPal is the Uber for lawn mowing. So if you're a homeowner, you need to get your grass cut. You just download our app and you get hooked up with a good lawn mowing service in less than a minute. Uh, GreenPal is nationwide, uh, hundreds of thousands of customers. Uh, we've been at it seven years, and we're doing $20 million a year in revenue uh, this year. Before GreenPal, I ha- actually started a little lawn mowing business in high school. My dad forced me to go cut the neighbor's grass one day on a hot summer day because he was tired of watching me play Nintendo. And uh, I'm glad he did it because I just something about owning my own business I just stuck with. I just loved it. Uh, by the end of that first summer, I was like 15 or 16 years old. I had uh, like a handful of customers and I kept at the grass cutting business all through high school, all through college. By the time I was 25, graduating college, I had around 50 employees. And over a 15-year period of time, I grew that uh, company, that little business into one of the largest landscaping companies in the state of Tennessee, getting it over $10 million a year in revenue. And in 2013, that, that company was acquired by one of the largest landscaping companies in the United States. And so taking that business from zero revenue, just myself and a push mower, 150 people. Um, I learned a lot about business, learned a lot about uh, working hard and how I didn't want to work as hard anymore at <laughs> one day. <laughs> and so uh, luckily, I had a, I had one of my first bookkeeping slash accountants uh, beaten to my head in the early days, like when I was 19, 20 years old, that I needed to uh, start investing in real estate and I needed to take a certain chunk of the cash that I was making from the business and, and put it in real estate. And I'm glad she did because because that's how I have built the majority of my net worth. Wow, that's pretty awesome. That's pretty remarkable. So I think it'd be safe to say that you're pretty much the king of grass. Is that correct? <laughs> well, I don't know about the king, but uh, man, it's the only business I know. I, I, I'm not very smart, but I'm smart in, spot, in spots, and I tend, I tend to stay in those spots. And so uh, I know the grass cutting business uh, in my soul. And uh, so going, you know, starting one from scratch and, and, and getting it built and sold, which which almost never happens in this industry. And then now building the tech, tech-enabled marketplace to make it happen, like at a touch of a button. I've seen it from both ends of the table. And, and uh, I do love the business. Uh, for me, it's, it's the thing that's helped improve my station in life. And luckily, my dad forced me into it when I was a teenager. Yeah, that's awesome. Pretty remarkable story, too. I think a lot of us start cutting grass and in high school, but it's it, it stays there, right? We we cut a few lawns, we make a little bit of money, and and then it's over. So you continued it and grew. It. That's pretty remarkable. So Brian, what's your net worth today? We're on three and a half to four million dollars, just depending on how equities are doing and and whose opinion of real estate you look at. Yeah, and how is that broken up? Ninety percent of it is in real estate. Uh, I I uh, invested heavily in real estate all through the uh, two thousand the two thousand. 2000s and 2010s, and uh, I just stuck with it. I, I a ment- early mentor of mine told me, once you buy a piece of real estate, never sell it. And there's a million ways to make money in real estate, but that one's worked for me. And I've just bought real estate and held it, and and made sure it cash flowed well and all zero debt. I, I, I haven't 
taken on any debt for for any of my my real estate acquisitions. I, I paid cash for all of them, and just that real just not sexy, slow, but secure and safe approach is just how I've approached investing and how I've approached building my net worth. One of the early influencers in, into my philosophies was Dave Ramsey. Uh, probably like 2000, 2001, I was mowing yards 12, 13 hours a day. And I listened to talk radio on a, on a pair of headphones um, that I had. And so every day, Dave Ramsey would come on at one o'clock and I would listen to this guy from one o'clock to four o'clock. And like, this dude is like the most annoying, but like truthful, like advisor I've ever like listened to. Like, like a lot of his philosophies are just baked into my DNA in terms of living debt free and, and investing debt free and, and almost being scared of debt to a degree. And so that's how I built my business and that's how I did my investing. And building my, that business debt free was the reason why I was able to get it sold. You know, I had 70, 80 trucks and never took on a truck payment or a car loan for, for any of those assets. And so when it came time to sell the business, I had a real clean balance sheet and, and it was just a smooth transaction. Uh, whereas most of my competitors, you know, they might have had a $5 million business, but they also had $5 million in debt to go with it. So luckily I had that influence at a young age. And so, and so I just kept, I kept, you know, the snowball effect building, building the compound interest of investing and not taking on debt to, to do it. And that's what's kept me, you know, in the game to weather like downturns like the 08 crisis and, and, and also the crisis that we've gone through this year. And it's, it's at times, you know, you look back and you're like, man, you know, I, I probably could have done better if I just used some debt smart, but at least I'm, I'm default, a default never going to go backwards. Yeah, that's interesting. So real estate, are you buying single family homes or the multifamily or commercial? That's it. Just single family homes. And so, uh, what I would do in the early days, uh, we're talking like 2002, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. I would look for like the most rundown, beat up houses you could find. And I would try to buy them all cash. And then I would, I would rehab them myself. And so I had a, you know, a crew of five, 10, 20 people, you know, as, as many as 150 towards the end of that business. And a lot of these folks that worked for me were very, very handy. And so, uh, I would buy a house and then like we would like in the winter months when the lawn mowing and landscaping business was slow, we would go in and fix these houses up, you know, whether it be like repaint, sheetrock, carpet, roof, even brick, like these guys could literally do it all. And so that would, that was just like a little rinse and repeat thing I would do. I would try to buy one house every year. And, uh, some years I couldn't like, particularly like, Oh, eight when, when my, my business almost went bust. Uh, so there were some years I was just trying to survive, but if the business did well in a given year, I would try to buy a single family home for somewhere in the neighborhood of 50 to, to a hundred thousand dollars all cash. And then, and then I would put 20, 30, 40, $50,000 in it and did very well doing that. And, and so that's the majority of my, my net worth is in real estate. Some is in equities, but, but 90% plus is in, in real estate. Okay. So Brian, lots of directions we can go here. And I want to come back to the story and, and the businesses, but just finishing up on your allocation. So 90% in, in real estate, mostly single family. Paid for, yeah. Paid, paid yeah. for real estate. Yeah. Yeah. Good for you. How much in your primary home? Uh, around a half million. Uh, okay. I just, I have a condo in in downtown Nashville. So, you know, outside of Nashville, you know, an hour outside of Nashville, half a million will buy you a, a mansion. Downtown Nashville, half a million buys you something pretty modest. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny. <laughs> yeah. And are you still buying single family homes now? I am not. Uh, so, so now I, I, I probably, I discontinued investing in real estate about the same time I sold my first business because that was a shift in, uh, my mindset, my lifestyle and where I was going. So I, I kind of got to a point where all my future days were paid for. And so I didn't have to ever worry about 
like going and getting a job or having a business that was going to pay me with a W-2 or, or, or anything. Like I knew all of my bills were paid. I was 100% debt free. And so now I was in a really good place to start Green Pal, my second business. Uh, and I knew I wanted to bootstrap that business. So a lot of tech startups like Green Pal, like mine, you have to raise capital and a bunch of it just to, just to be in the game. And to me, that seemed like a bad bet because I, I, I just saw a lot of other companies that were doing that and there was like a graveyard of them a year or two or three years later. And so for me, I wanted to build that business debt free. And so like one of my favorite quotes is Mark Cuban. He says, the least you can live on, the greater your options. And so for us, my two co-founders and I and GreenPal, like we didn't have to pay ourselves anything for the first year, two, three years. My two co-founders still worked full-time jobs and they worked on the second business nights and weekends. And, and I didn't have to pay myself anything because I was, I was self-sustained. And so like that has been a huge competitive advantage for us building this business. And so for me, like my, my real estate investing was almost done. I had a, I had a real good like nest egg that was giving me good cash flow and I could live on it very comfortably and have to worry about it. So now I have like invested all of my bandwidth and, and extra money into, into GreenPal, which is, you know, got a private valuation around $30 million now. And, and luckily, you know, here we are seven years later with a definition of a seven year overnight success. We have no debt. Our cap table is really clean. And so we're kind of in, in charge of our own destiny now, which feels good. Wow. Wow. Good for you. Yeah, obviously amazing. How many single family homes do you own? And if you're comfortable, how much in income does that bring you monthly? So I own uh, 10 now and one of them is a duplex. And then one of them is, a, is an old shop that I used to uh, run my business when it was smaller out of. So one is semi-commercial and then, uh, and then 10 other homes and one of them is a duplex. And, it, you know, depending on, like this year, I've had like five evictions. It's been a rough year to be in the real estate investing game because uh, a lot of lot of slow pays and and, and some evictions. And uh, this year hasn't been a good year. But you know, in a good year, I can make one hundred fifty grand, one hundred seventy five thousand dollars off off of those properties. In a bad year, half that. But you know, the the thing is, is like when you have really low personal overhead, it really almost doesn't matter. Sure. So, so now, so real quick on your allocation, any money in the stock market at all? Around three hundred thousand, and and that's all invested in in Vanguard index funds. Okay, that's kind of just your safe. <laughs> let it let it sit. Yeah. Well, and here's here's another fun story. Like you know, when I uh, sold my business, I I peeled off a hundred grand just to just to play with. Because I wanted to see if I could take a hundred thousand dollars and turn it into a million in like five years uh, by playing stocks, and uh, you know I got that up to like three or four hundred thousand dollars at one point, and then now now I think it's worth about twenty. <laughs> so I learned really quick. I learned really quick that you know unless I'm going to sit at a terminal all day and study charts and watch and right. watch CNBC and Bloomberg, don't play that game. And and I had no desire to do that. Like that stuff never. I love making money. But like really, really just like getting into the technical aspects of, of day trading and buying and selling single family uh, or uh, single stocks, like the idea of it sure is sexy. But like when you really get into it, it's just something I didn't want to do. And so, yeah, I lost my shirt. And I, and I, and I was like, okay, I'm comfortable with losing this $100,000, but I want to see if I can turn it into a million. And I learned really quick that that wasn't the game for me. Yeah, and even if you're not going to day trade, right? Even if you're almost going to buy and, and hold to an extent, you really need to stay up to date on it. Like Absolutely. you got, I mean, unless you're going to buy Apple and you're like, all right, I'll just leave it there. But if you're buying smaller stocks or less well-known companies, a lot of the time you have to track it pretty close in, yeah. in case you want something big to happen. Really, and I mean that's cool if you enjoy that, do it because there's a lot of money to be made there if you know what you're doing. But you don't, like the Warren Buffett approach, like look at it like if you only had 20 stock picks in your entire lifespan and treat them as that, and then you know maybe. But then again, like man, you know I don't have the interest to to, to like I love building products, I love building tech products, I love like scaling my startup. Like my businesses have always been the best wealth generation generating tool that I have. So like I put all my bandwidth into that and cause that's what I'm good at. I'm good at creating businesses. I'm, I'm, that's, that's one of the few talents I have. And so I just, I double down on that, uh, and, and not try to do any kind of get rich quick schemes like stock trading. Cause I, I, that's a good way to go to zero. Yeah. My, so one, I got a really good piece of advice. My, my, when I sold my business, 
the guy that bought my business, he's probably worth a hundred million dollars. And he, and he is talking to me in my office and it was the day after like the wire transfer. And like, you know, it was now like the business wasn't mine anymore. It was a very emotional day for me. And, uh, and now I'm starting the transition of like, okay, now, now I'm helping him figure out how his team's going to run the company. And he says to me, he says, well, well, first off, congratulations. You're, you're now a millionaire. And let me tell you something. It's, it's easier to make a million dollars than it is to hold on to a million dollars. He says, there's going to be a lot of people pitching you investment ideas and there's going to be a lot of things you think you're going to want to do with this money and so on. But know that it's harder to keep it than it was to make it. And that really just stuck with me. And that's, and that's one of the things that almost scared me to a degree, just to, just to invest it as securely and, and non-sexy, in a non-sexy way as I could, get a good rate of return and, and then move forward. And that way, you know, like I know that like I, I never have to pick up a weed eater again. You know, I spent 10 years literally like calluses on my hands, mowing grass, you know, and I didn't want to go back to that. Uh, and so for me, that has like informed my investment strategy of, okay, this is solid. You know, it's going to be here 10, 20, 30 years from now. It's going to grow at a certain rate of return, maybe more, but nevertheless. And that's, that's, that's formed my approach. So is that what made you get into this? That's what you're referring to, the single family homes. That's what made you want to get into that. Like, Hey, I know this is going to be here and it's going to be dependable. Absolutely. And luckily a lot of this was happening in 10, 11, 12, 13, when prices were really, really, really depressed in Middle Tennessee. And now a lot of these properties have doubled and tripled over the last seven, eight years. Do you self-manage any of them? No, I don't, I don't want to trade time for money. And so I have a management company deal with all that for me. And, and, and thank God, because this year has been so rough, you know, five <laughs> evictions. Right. You know, like, I don't want to, I don't want to deal with that. And so that they have earned every dime of that 10%. Sure. And just for our audience, we're recording this mid-October 2020. So, Brian, let's dive into these businesses because I think that's what makes this story so incredible and unique. So how did the first business differ from the second? What, were, what was the difference there? Yeah. So the first business was a traditional like lawn mowing landscaping company started off just mowing in single family homes for people. And then over time, I, you know, I got that business over a million dollars in revenue and started to understand the differences between working in my business, cutting grass and working on my business, developing processes and systems and competitive advantages around what this business was doing. I, you know, back then in the late nineties, early two thousands, mid two thousands, we didn't have YouTube. We didn't have podcasts like this one. You know, there was wasn't a real easy way to learn this stuff like it is today, you know, but I just learned through trial and error. And one thing I did do that was smart is, is I attended conferences for the industry. And every time I would go to one of these conferences, I would try to like go to the biggest landscaping company in that city. So like, for instance, I went to Chicago one time and, and one of the biggest landscaping companies in Chicago, I was able to tour their facility and talk to the owner and they like showed me that, you know, how they did what they did. I was able to borrow a lot of those processes and, and apply them to my business that was a tenth the size. And so that helped me grow that business uh, from just a lawn mowing business to a, a real like landscaping construction operation. It was a, you know, it took 15 years, but, but uh, going from zero to $10 million in revenue, I learned a lot of, a lot of uh, the, the methods and, and ways to grow a business, to lead, to manage, to, you know, make your business stand out in a very competitive landscape. And these are like, like principles of business that really apply to no matter, you know, any kind of company or business you're running. And so I was able to learn how to do that and learn the industry and then, and then apply all of that to my second business, GreenPal, which is uh, a tech enabled marketplace that connects buyers and sellers. It connects homeowners or people who are renting a home who have a yard that needs to be mowed with somebody who is the best fit at the best price, reliable to come cut their grass that day. And, and so starting the second company, I was able to like come to the starting line with the, the tacit knowledge of the landscaping business and understanding the problem at an innate level. But I didn't know the first thing about building software. I didn't know the first thing about writing code or designing software. So I had to learn, my team and I had to learn all those skills from scratch. That took about three years. And as we're learning, we're doing and rinse and repeat. And we just kind of manufactured our own momentum in the early days and stuck with it. And now here we are. We're the definition of a, of a seven-year overnight success. 
Well, way to go. So these numbers on this first business, and then we'll come back to the second. So $10 million in revenue, you said, right? That's right. So if I divide that by let's how much how much was the average payment forty fifty bucks to mow lawn to to do everything? Yeah, so so that company the first two or three years were residential, uh, like you know thirty forty fifty dollar lawn mowings, and then yeah. really quickly I began to learn that there's no way to like the lawn mowing business is the best small business in the world. It is the best weekend warrior night and weekend like side gig because you can make $75 an hour cutting grass if you're hustling for and 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 doing the work for for homeowners to get to the next level like there's this big gap because you have to reinvent your company and reinvent your business to to get out of the residential space and into the commercial one and so it took me like 5 years to like break into the commercial space and like like whether it be banks, restaurants, apartment complexes, commercial parks, airports, things of that nature. And, and I had to kind of use the residential clientele as like, is like the cash cow to fund, uh, our efforts in trying to cut our way into the, the really competitive commercial landscape. And then for many years, we're doing, we're doing like commercial contracts at cost just as a way to build up our scale and build up our brand and name recognition in the industry and, and doing a better job than our competitors. And that took years. And so over a long period of time, I used a small, like million, $2 million a year in revenue, a residential clientele to like fund the expansion into the commercial uh, space. And so you can't build a $10 million or $20 million a year landscaping business mowing single family homes. Uh, to get to that scale, you have to be doing like $100,000 contracts, $200,000 contracts and doing a bunch of those because there's just no real way to compete at, in the, with the, in the 30 to $40 lawn mowings at that scale. And so as I grew that company into eight, into eight figures, it was, it was, you know, 100% comprised of six figure contracts and up. Gotcha, gotcha. And how big did it get operation wise? I think you mentioned how many trucks you had, but how many how many trucks, how many employees, mowers, something tangible that will be interesting? Yeah, every day, every day we'd go in. Uh, I'd go into the office, and it was organized chaos. That uh, there would be thirty lawn mowing crews going out, tw- uh, twenty landscape install crews going out. So any, on, on any given day, fifty to seventy trucks were, were rolling out of the shop every day, and. Uh, 150 employees uh, for for years running that company. I was kind of like, I guess you'd call like the senior ops manager of the of it, but I also had a sales manager uh, that that helped uh, with manage our sales process. Uh, I you know I, I did have a head of human resources. I had a, a good administrative team around me, and then our crew leaders were solid. Had all been with us uh, for for many years. When I sold that business over a 15 year period of time, there were like 20 people that had been there over 10 years. And so that was a big competitive advantage was not having that employee turnover. It was like a crew leader on on any one of our 30 or 40 crews had the industry experience, had the tenure, had the knowledge so we could deliver a consistent service to our clientele. Wow. And now with the second company, I mean, the first company was boots on the ground, right? People going out, you managing contracts. The second one now is is different, right? You're not necessarily the boots on the ground doing the lawn, but you're going to be on the back end handling all the tech side. Completely different. Um, the only commonalities is is we're in the I'm in the kind of the same industry, but uh, I was naive when I started the business to really understand what it took to compete in a techno in a technological enabled landscape. So, you know, is the grass greener on the other side? Uh, depends. Um, you know, the good thing about building a software enabled uh, business is that usually there's a technological solution to almost every problem you face. And so it's, it's like you can ask. One thing we do is we ask why five times. And so for us, one of the things that we deliver as a, as a platform, as a service is when you hire a lawn mowing service on GreenPal, you know, they're going to show up and it's taken us seven years to, to iterate and to deliver that reliability. But it, we had to like go through a process of like building the software to ensure that that guy shows up and, and make sure that, that, you know, the, the, the service providers that are unreliable or expelled from the system and the ones that are reliable are promoted. And so 
like going through the process of building a technological solution for every single problem you face is a luxury in in a in a tech enabled business. But one of the challenges is that you don't realize is that you're inventing a, something that does not exist. So there is no track record that you can like emulate. There there wasn't there isn't a bigger uh business in another market that I can go talk to and like borrow and rob from their philosophies. We are having to make it up as we go. And the only way you can figure out what works is just to keep trying and going from one failure to the next without a loss of an, uh, an optimism. And it can be daunting, especially, you know, in the first three, four years of starting a tech startup. Uh, it's very much an exercise of faith. So on the back end of this app, is it is it just a person like me that has my own mower and you book me and, and I get reviews and then I show up at 10 a.m. the agreed time on a Saturday morning and cut your lawn? Uh, essentially. So the we have around 10,000 service providers that use the, the platform as a means for them to plug in and operate their business, everything on top of it. So they don't have to do things like bookkeeping or, or managing their route or or wondering if they're going to have enough work this week. We handle all that for them. All they have to do is do a great job at the service that they're providing for their customer. And to your question, our ideal uh, sweet spot service provider is like chucking a truck, Peter in a pickup, weekend warrior. Uh, maybe we have a lot of firemen, a lot of teachers, uh, a lot of police officers, you know, municipal workers that, that maybe, you know, only work 40 hours a week, but they, they, they want to make some extra money and they work 10, 20 hours a week cutting grass. It's a great fit for, for that type of use case. Um, around 10% of the service providers on the platform are bigger companies. They might have five employees, 10 employees. Um, but the vast majority are solo operators. Maybe they have a helper here and there. But they're like solo entrepreneurs and they just want to figure out a way to make an extra fifty or a hundred thousand dollars in a year and we're the best toolkit for that. Do you ever worry about them on the back end cutting you out of it? So if somebody has a, a contract, like, you know, if I show up to somebody's house and I'm part of, of your company and then I say, Hey, just cut out these guys and I'll come do it and we can build it on the back end ourselves. Yeah, so any uh marketplace like like ours, whether it be Uber Airbnb, Thumbtack, Angie's List, uh, that disintermediation is something that does happen. But it's not happening to your company or to your business, to your idea. It's happening for it. Like you have to look at it like, oh, okay, I'm almost in a way glad it's happening because it's leading me down a path of, okay, I know I need to solve this problem here or I need to deliver more value to my service providers. You have to deliver so much value to service providers to where it just doesn't make any sense to go outside of the, te- the technology. It doesn't make any sense to do it the old way. So uh, that's, a, that's a combination of like value and it's also a combination of just how much you're taking out of the transaction. Our fee is, is so reasonable that it doesn't make any sense uh, for them to do it the old way because one of the things that's difficult about the lawn mowing business that a lot of people don't realize is like you, you, you cut grass for 12 hours and then you have to spend another three hours mailing out invoices and like, chasing down people that owe you money and the lawn mowing guy is, is is the last to get paid on the stack of bills. And so ensuring that that service provider gets paid within 24 hours of completing the job is a big part of the value proposition that attracts them to use the platform and keeps them using it. And 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 so uh it's kind of like if you if you got into an Uber and then and then like you're in the Uber and you talk to the drivers like hey, you know, I know this ride is $7 but but we could probably do it for $5.25 if I just cancel this ride <laughs> and pay you directly. That's literally like the dynamics of, of like you're hiring this person for $27. And sure, it might be like $24.50 if you went direct, but it's sure. just not worth it for, for either party. Brian, it's pretty remarkable. You said you've been building this now for seven years? Yeah, seven years. And in and, 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 and one way, if the days are long and the years are short. That's one of my favorite quotes, and it, that describes what it's felt like building this business. It, it's seven years. I can't believe that it's gone by that quick. But at the same time, I can because, man, we have, we have really worked hard on this thing, especially in the early days. It was, it was a slog. Yeah, I can imagine. So, Brian, where do you go from here? Is, are, you, are you trying to get to a certain revenue number with the, with the business? And, and also, where do you go in your personal life? Net worth target at all? I mean, I know you mentioned earlier you kind of got to a point where you were financially free. Is there somewhere you're trying to head? Yeah. 
you know, for me, I learned a lot about myself selling my first company. I learned that I'm very much like a lot of my joy is derived from building businesses and companies and watching them be successful and also creating opportunities for my co-founders, my employees and people who use my products. And so I learned that the hard way because I took some time off building the after selling the first company. I took six months, almost maybe a year off and I got bored and I really got stale and stagnant. And I, I started to realize that like life is almost like a stream going through the woods. And like if you come across a stream that is like dammed up and it's not moving, it starts to stink. It's, it's It collects trash and it's just not a pleasant place to be around. But if the stream is moving and flowing, then it's then it's something cool to sit sit by. And for me, that's what like almost a metaphor for life. And like for me, business is the thing, is the thrust, it's the forcing function that keeps me moving forward, keeps me getting better and better and better. I am not the same person today that that I, that I was back in 2013, 2014, starting this company. It's caused me to learn so many things and become sharper and smarter and wiser. So that's one thing I love about business. Uh, yeah, I'm driven. I'm driven by, by, I'm motivated by money too. I'm not going to lie, but I think to be successful in business, there has to be like a irrational fanaticism to build something great. And that could be just like a construction company in your hometown. It could be like an apartment complex that you want to own one day. It could be a tech startup like I'm building. But like there has to be an irrational obsession to like be a part of something that's successful. And then the money flows with that. And so I don't have like a personal like revenue target, like I'll be happy when I'm worth a hundred million dollars. I mean, yeah, it'd be nice to have a hundred million dollars. Not going to lie, but I'm not going to, I'm not saying, okay, once I get to that point, I'm done. Like, like GreenPow is is got so much further to go. Yeah, we have two hundred thousand customers using the platform right now. But until that number's in the millions and GreenPow is in the lexicon of the English language, like one of the default things that you just use to get this tour done, we're not gonna be finished with what we're doing. Totally. Brian, in terms of building this product, how much do you pay attention to to what your customers' feedback is and how quickly can you change things on the platform for them? Yeah. So when you're inventing a product from scratch, customer feedback is, is the lifeblood of tilting the odds in your favor of success. And yeah, that's kind of cliche. Everybody says, yeah, you need to listen to your customers, but nobody does it. You have to figure out an easy way for your customers to communicate with you. And so for us, we have live chat embedded on every single screen on both sides of this transaction on web and mobile. And even to this day, I still do at least a couple hours a day of customer support myself personally, because I'm never at uh, a loss to wonder what it is we need to be focusing on because our, our customers, our users are always telling us things that they wish the product would do or places where they're disappointed or places where they're delighted or what they, you know, what they expected out of us that we didn't deliver on. And I think, especially if you're bootstrapped, that customer feedback and that is, is the lifeblood of, of keeping the momentum going and, and like really achieving success. And that could mean, you know, if you have a home cleaning business, you, you know, anytime you're talking to your customers, there's time well spent. If you're ever at a loss for what you should be doing, just pick up the phone and call five of your customers. You'll learn something that you didn't know. The other thing I recommend is that is that businesses actually do business with themselves. I sign up for GreenPal once a week uh, just to just to look at the flow, just to just to uh, remind myself of okay, this is where we need to work on, or okay, this is a little bit of friction here. I'm where my team and I are always in search of the friction of what's in front of a user or customer to do business with us, and so. It doesn't matter what business you have. If you can figure out a way to do business with yourself, even as a secret shopper or something like that, that'll, that'll help drive you towards smart, smarter decision thinking and could save you years and years of doing the, th- doing the wrong things. And it also, it could spell the difference between success and failure of your business. Yeah, totally. So, Brian, I want to go back. Just you mentioned a little bit that, that your dad pushed you into to mowing some lawns. What was it like? In your childhood and, and growing up and in terms of money and debt and were these things discussed? Was there a philosophy that you kind of adopted from your parents? Yeah, they were 
they were very influential, both of them. My, my dad taught me good work ethic and, and taught me, you know, doing a job right the first time is the only way to do it. And my mom taught me, uh, like almost kind of a f- monodical f- focus on my books and my bookkeeping, making sure I knew who owed me money, making sure that I was on top of my scheduling and making sure that I, I knew, uh, what my costs were. And so those two things were, principles beating beaten into my head as a teenager that carried me through even to this day i'm 40 years old today into how i run my companies so i was lucky to have good parents um and then like i mentioned earlier i was i was also lucky just to like i don't want to like just focus on on dave ramsey because i know i know his teachings are a little controversial but for me i don't know if i'd be retired today if i hadn't listened to four hours a day of dave ramsey for five years and just just that that approach of not sexy figuring out something that works and just rinse and repeat and doing it debt free is 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 what has like allowed me to build the compound interest and 15 20 years later I'm at a place where I don't have to work anymore yeah was there a splurge or something you did when you sold that first company oh yeah <laughs> what was it well, well, when I was when I was in my late twenties, I, I, I was in my late twenties, early thirties. I was making a lot of money running that company, and I built uh, I built an eight thousand square foot house, and I bought a Ferrari, and I did I did that for about I lived there for about two years and realized I don't want any of this crap. <laughs> I sold the car and. I had a couple cars actually. I, I sold all of them, sold the house, and, and moved down into a, a thousand square foot condo. Uh, so I kind of had to do all of that and learn that that's not what made me happy and not what drove me to like achieve good things in life. I had to like experience it and then and then almost divorce myself from it. And I don't know that anybody can really understand what that's like until they actually go through it. Well, let's just finish up with with some millionaire questions, Brian. What's the most expensive pair of pants you've ever purchased? I'm not big into fashion. And uh, my, some of my friends are, and they look great. But uh, it's, And I can appreciate good fashion, but to me it just seems silly. So, I mean, less... I mean, less less than a hundred bucks, maybe maybe $75, maybe. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, under a hundred dollars. Most expensive pair of shoes? Late in life, I've gotten into fitness. I run a lot, and so I'll, I'll, I'll invest in my fitness. So I'll buy a good pair of running shoes. Um, so I've spent $250 on, on some good running shoes because they make my knees not hurt. Yeah. But other than that, you know, anything outside of athletics, under 100 bucks. Okay. What about ex- most expensive meal out that you've paid for? I have made some dumb decisions there. I bought a I bought a dinner one time in La, in Vegas that was like almost two grand. It might have been more. It might have been closer to three grand. Some good steak. Yeah, it was and uh, drinks. A bunch <laughs> of drinks. It was it was me and a bunch of friends and a bunch of drinks and really good food. And there was like eight of us. So yeah, I I wish I and that was ten years ago. I wish I had taken that money and put it in Amazon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no kidding, right? Uh, what's the most expensive car you purchased? Probably that Ferrari, I would imagine. Ferrari, yeah, that was about that was about two hundred twenty thousand dollars. And you sold it for how much? I, I didn't lose much money on it. I, oh, really? I, I think I might have even broke even because I only had it for a couple years, and I bought it in eleven, which okay. was like. Really, really, really depressed economy, and I sold it a couple years later. So I think I almost broke even on it, which in the end, pretty good deal. I got to drive it almost for free. There you go. There you go. With, I guess, a little bit of insurance in there too. Yeah. How old were you when you became a millionaire? Uh, it depends on because I I, I want to say that first business was probably worth a couple million bucks at age twenty five, but you know, I I, I I hadn't realized it. I was probably twenty eight, twenty nine. When okay. I had a million dollar net worth in real estate. Nice. What's been your your as much as you're comfortable sharing range of household income? Uh, it's been as low as in the early days of starting my first business, twenty grand. I mean, I was I was living on a. One thing I would do is I, I would eat at uh, CC's Pizza, which is a pizza chain. They had all you could eat pizza for two ninety nine, and I'll have a water to drink, and that would be my only meal for the day. And so wow. I live on as little as I, as little as I, I live on as little as I could. I did that for like two. They, they saw me coming too. 
Uh, I'd do that at least two days a week. Of course, I was a young kid, but still, uh, I would live on like 18, 20 grand a year and invest every dime as I could in, into the business. Now, now, you know, I mean, I've made as much as a half million dollars in a year, maybe a little more. And now I'm, I'm somewhere around a hundred to 200,000 a year. Okay. And your range of annual spending is basically what your rentals are kicking off for the most part. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's, that's, that's what I live off of. Every, okay. every dime, I, I take a salary at Green Pal, but then I reinvest it back into the business because okay. I don't need that money. And I know that that's going to be my best ROI. Any dollar I can get my hands on, my best ROI is pumping it in the Green Pal. Yeah, totally. What is worth spending the money on to you? Coaching. And that could be a, a coaching for business. Like I, I, I'm into martial arts, so I study Muay Thai and Krav Maga. And so I have a Muay Thai coach and a Krav Maga coach. I pay these guys like $150 an hour. That's money well spent. Any kind of like money you can spend on, on, uh, like a, like meditation and, and like a yoga instructor to me is money well spent. Anything you can spend on, uh, online learning. I still spend three or $4,000 a year on, uh, online classes. It could be anything from like learning something like search engine optimization to conversion rate optimization to like these skills that I just need to like be, uh, have, have a good handle on. That's money well spent. To me, like I love to travel. And so I've never regretted any dime I've ever spent on travel. I have regretted money I've spent on partying, on, on any clothes, vehicles. I've regretted that money because I knew that like, okay, man, if I had just taken that that money that I blew on partying uh, back in my twenties, you know, and put it into Facebook, I'd have a yacht. <laughs> but, but, uh, so, so I do, I do regret some of those dumb decisions. But I've never regretted any money I've spent traveling. What is not worth spending the money to you? For me personally, I think I think spending money on clothes is is silly. Um, but then again, you know, like I'll go out to dinner with some friends. Like he looks good. <laughs> I mean, I'm like, not like you know, I'm like you know, I, I admire. <laughs> <laughs> I admire, or even like, like I admire like uh style, I guess you could say. But it's not for me. Like I don't want to spend two grand on that outfit. I think that's dumb. But I can admire it. So um, I'm not like knocking fashion, but I, I I'm pretty sure that's that's silly money spent. So yeah, any anything on clothes, usually eating out is 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 silly. And those two things are probably and and, and of course bars, and, you know, good bar tabs. I mean. If I could have half that money back, that's that's money foolishly spent. So just real quick, I know we're wrapping up here and short on time. I just want to go back. You you built this whole business, both businesses, right? And you bought all your family, your single family rentals with cash. That's right. Yeah, that's my approach. Right? There's been no debt. That's, no so, debt. that's my philosophy. So let's talk about that because we, we haven't had somebody on that's built a business two businesses, right? This big and have been able to grow quickly and buy all these single family rentals with just cash, no debt. So a couple questions here. Do you feel like you could have done it faster with debt? Are you glad you did it? Do you advise people to do the same? I mean, on one hand, you say, hey, if you can borrow at two, three, four percent and you're growing as quickly as you could, do you think you could have scaled this faster or are you happy you did it how you did it? Yeah, looking back, I, you know, everything I know today, yeah, absolutely. Um, I could, you know, it's taken me seven years to, to get, um, Green Pal where it is today. If somebody had given me a million dollars or five or ten million dollars in the, in the, in year two, I could have done it in a third of the time, knowing what I know today. But I didn't know that then. And so the reality is I was sort of pissed all that away and I would have just burnt it up. And then I would have either been 10 million in debt or had an equity partner that wanted me to sell the business because he was pissed that we didn't have any cash in the bank. So like looking back and knowing everything I know today, yes. But at the time still, I mean, if all things equal, I'd have done it the same way because, because I, I, I know all my, you know, my future days are paid for and, and I don't, I don't have to go backwards, but, but, you know, I, I could have took me 15 years to build the first business. I probably could have done the same thing in, in four years with the knowledge I have today and, and using, uh, capitals wisely, uh, certainly. So I don't know what the answer there is. Maybe if you have a coach who's done it before and can be your Sherpa, can guide you through, then maybe you can avoid uh, some of the mistakes, mistakes that come with, with, uh, using debt. But, uh, but, but here, here, here's another little, little sidebar. I went through the 2008 meltdown 
where my where all of my customers went out of business, and you know I we had two hundred thousand uh, dollars in, in a week in payroll, and and I had twenty grand in the bank. So I've been like at low points in business, and and I also saw other other multi generational businesses that were had 10 and 20 million dollar net worths go up in smoke in six months because these guys were over over leveraged so i've seen that i've seen like wealth just evaporate because of 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 being over leveraged i also saw a guy that that had like 20 rental properties and and he lost them all in a year uh so i've seen this happen in 08 and 09 and and i went through that and and i came out prospering because i wasn't leveraged so do if I had to do it all over again, I'd done it the same way. But, I mean, I guess that's, my, that's the answer to that question. But I like that's just my experience. That's not the only way to success. That's that's just that's just how I did it, and that's that's just my philosophy. It's not the only way to do it. Certainly, Brian. Just in conclusion, what advice would you give to to somebody starting out who maybe in their twenties or thirties and and they're just trying to to get started in investing or maybe building a business? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, ideally you're in your twenties because the younger, the better, but like start small, know that all things that are big start off small, understand, like really, really wrap your head around compounded interests and understand that like that first hundred thousand is a bit, get your hands on a, like if you can, like whatever you got to do, you got to get your hands on that first hundred thousand to put it to work. And it could mean driving for Uber. Uh, it could mean, mean like delivering groceries on Instacart nights and weekends, whatever you got to do to put together fifty hundred thousand dollars begin investing, whether it be in real estate uh, or, or just, or, or even just equities or, or, or in your own, ideally in your own business. To me, like small business is the single best like wealth generating uh, path in this country. It, it is like the, the American, the American dream still is alive in many ways. I think I'm like, an example of it. I'm just an ordinary dude who's managed to to improve his station in life through business. You know, figure out a way to get in the game, and because only when you're in the game is the only way you can win. And a lot of that, to me, uh, comes back to hustle and just reducing your personal overhead as much as you can. All of the partying, all of the clothes, the cars, the shoes none of none of that stuff really matters. And if you could just take five, ten years out of your life and like look at a hundred dollars, not as a hundred dollars, but look at it like a thousand dollars because one day it'll be a thousand dollars and, and try to invest as much as you can to get the snowball going. It will be worth it. Like, like set a goal to like retire by 40 because you can't do it. Uh, you just got to start today. Awesome. That's Brian net worth of three and a half to 4 million founded two businesses, the king of green lawns and all. Thanks for coming on the show today. My pleasure, man. I enjoy it. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for listening to the Millionaire's Unveiled podcast with Clark Sheffield and Chase Mattinson. For more stories, investment opportunities, and information, check out our website at millionairesunveiled.com. See you next time when you'll hear from another everyday millionaire.